You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, or 50 minutes, or 40 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Simon and I'm JR and tonight we are well there's a reason for this Matt and I did a podcast last year mm-hmm. in which we without doing any homework first really sat down and literally for two hours went through the whole of Doctor Doctor Who trying to work out what was the most paradigm bit of Doctor Who didn't we mm-hmm. yes so I've got a bit of a shock for the pair of you well possibly it might be a shock it might not well, after two hours of batting backwards and forwards, we decided that season 10, mm-hmm. which ran in, well, started in very late 1972 and ran through 73, was the season that best or most well represented Doctor Who and all its ideas and themes and such like. And so I've decided that because we were watching series five last year, and we will be watching Series 6 later this year, in between uh, Series 10 and Chris Chibnall taking over, mm-hmm. to sort of round out the Stephen Moffat. I've decided that since Season 10 came up from 1973, we are, for the next couple of months, going to sit through the whole of that. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Neither <laughs> of you are as badly shocked by that as I thought you might be. What, well, we wouldn't be watching Doctor Who. Well, yeah. <gasps> well, yeah, but I mean, the classic series, apart from some two-parters. Slightly annoyingly, I'd started a rewatch of Pertwee oh, really? just before Christmas, and I'd got as far as Claws of Axos. I haven't watched Claws of Axos yet. Oh, well, that's okay. So this is this is just... It slots in yeah, nicely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. But it will take us probably a good couple of months, and it might actually overlap until after Series 10, because I've got a few other things on the cards as well, but we'll just see how it goes. We will, across the course of 2017, at some point, get through Season okay. 10. And tonight, we're starting that journey with the Three Doctors. But before we get into the Three Doctors, and I don't really often do this, but I've got a new book out, and it's, well... As we record, it's due out in about three days. Mm. As this podcast goes out, it'll probably already be available. Mm. So, you know, since I'm the host of this podcast, I thought I might as well give myself a little plug. Well, Matt's in it anyway. I'm in it. Do you want to say what it is, Matt? It's called Hating Hating to Love. Hating to Love. Yes. So it's some some number of stories. <laughs> I don't know what it is. How many stories? 52? It says 52 on the cover. 52. How many stories is it then? It's about 65. <laughs> 65 stories. And they've been... So we, we volunteered to do certain stories that we considered to be generally poorly regarded. Yeah. I mean, well, the idea, well, the strap line on the cover says reassessing... Oh, I can't remember exactly word for word. Reassessing the 52 worst Doctor Who yeah, stories. Yeah. And the idea is that you go to the 
50-ish, the bottom quarter of Doctor Who, mm. and you take a second look at it and you say, does it really deserve its bad reputation? Yeah, and the main comments have been from that revelation, how did you choose the <laughs> worst <laughs> stories? But they were kind of chosen just by instinct, weren't they? I mean, there were Yeah, cause, we didn't... Because some stories are obviously... Yeah, there were some that you couldn't avoid having yeah, in there. Yeah, there were others where because one of the one of the stipulations I made was that apart from in one exceptional case, we wouldn't have more than two stories per season, mm. but we should have at least one story per season. Yeah. So, for example, we've got stories in there from season thirteen and season fourteen, mm-hmm. which probably don't fall into the bottom fifty according to any okay. poll. And yeah. season seven, which of course wouldn't get anywhere near the bottom fifty of any poll. Yeah. But we had to have the worst story yeah. of yeah. season seven. <clears throat> but conversely, other seasons where none of the stories are particularly well regarded, we just had to choose two yes. maximum, apart from season twenty four, which is basically regarded as the worst season ever made, so I figured that was fair game for using more. Mm -hmm. But basically, on the others, we had to choose two stories that we thought represented that season. So they weren't necessarily the two worst stories in that season. Sometimes they were two stories that covered particular themes or particular aspects. Yes, so everyone volunteered to do so, apart from me, who inherited stories that... No, I actually, three people inherited. Oh, OK. Oh, that's good. Three people inherited, and on the first round of choice... What, what, what happened was, we laid down a list of 52 stories, mm. and the ten of us who were originally down to write the book, mm. each sent me a list... Yes. And I divided them up as best I could according to who wanted to write about them. Mm. So nobody's, nobody on the original list of 10, apart from me, because I just gave myself the leftovers, mm-hmm. divided the rest up amongst the nine and gave myself the leftovers. Yes. But nobody in that original, those original nine was going to be writing about something they didn't want to. And then three dropped out, yeah. which is why the book's a year late. Which is why I ended up having to watch <laughs> yes. Time Lash last October. Yeah, for the first time in, well, I think since it was on. I I don't think I've actually seen it since it was on. Really? Yeah, I got it on DVD. I tried watching it on DVD. This this was a story, well, I won't spoil what I say about it. Why not? There's there's 64 other essays in the book. Reassessing Time Rash was tricky because it is one of the worst pieces of television ever made. It's not just the worst, one of the worst Doctor Who stories. It is unbelievable that it was shown on a Saturday night. Well, this is the thing about the book, is that it says reassessing. It wasn't a Saturday, though, was it? Time, yeah, uh, Time Lash was. Time Lash, yeah. oh, yeah. 22, yeah. 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 Bad fan. Well, one of the things about the book is it says reassessing. <laughs> I had time flight in my head. But oh, reassessing yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that no. you're going to find in its favour. I mean, some some I did. Yeah, but, oh, yeah. But a few, they just, you know. Well, there were some, some stories with poor reputations that really don't deserve them. Mm. Mm. And then there are other stories which are generally regarded as good. Here's an example of something that's in the book, but have one particular aspect. So, for instance, Death in Heaven is in the book, yeah. which I think is a great story, but of course it includes the cyber brig, mm, which yes. a lot of fandom was up in arms about. So, unfortunately, somebody who absolutely detests the Stephen Moffat era inherited that story, <laughs> and he's written ten pages where he crucifies Moffat and barely mentions the cyber brigadier. Okay. Is it heavily edited now? No, <laughs> Because, you know, what I said, I said, you know, these are the writers, these are the essays. Yes. And if I dictate to everybody what they write, 
Um, yeah. mm. Then that would just be a one-dimensional book. So I said, fair enough. That's what he said to me. That's what he was going to write. I said, if that's what you want to write, that's what will go in the book. Yes. And it's balanced out by other essays elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Although not the one on Curse of the Black Spot, which also leaves it a bit battered and bloody. Yes. <laughs> I think I had to... Am I allowed to reveal things? Because you've been revealing them on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ring, rings of Akaton. Well, the book's going to be out by the time this oh, podcast that's true. goes I have Rings of Akaton. And I quite liked Rings of Akaton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching it again, when you start thinking about it, it's quite an unusual lyrical story. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a story... Vignette. Well, this is but the thing. I've said this about Stephen Moffat. Mm. Some mm. of his stories really are very short stories that are expanded out to 45 minutes mm. rather than the other way around. Yeah. You also did Horns of Nymon. Yes, I like that. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's good. Yeah. It's story let down by its production, really. Yeah. But the yeah. production's not really. Uh, there are a few acting choices mm. that kind of let it down, but. But other than that, the production is not really a hell of a lot worse than most of the other things. And the idea behind it is a very strong one. I mean, that's, you know... It's a great script. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you what, one of the nicest essays in the book is Brendan Jones from Australia writing about Time in the Rani. Right. Which is one of those stories that I don't think deserves its bad reputation quite, Hmm. but it is by no stretch of the imagination... A decent Doctor Who story. Yeah. But he, I think he says he was eight when he first saw it, and it was basically not quite the first Doctor Who he ever saw, but as near as damn it. Mm. And so he has a lot of affection for it. Yeah. And he's able to go back and judge it through the eyes of an eight-year-old. Yeah. I was 10 when I saw it. Mm. I remember being quite frightened by the first episode. Well, well there I you go. It, I mean, you know... I still don't like it. Yeah, yeah. And I very quickly, you know, worked out. I think I was just at that cusp of knowing when the story mm. was bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I was about that age when season 17 was on, so yeah. I found parts of Nightmare of Eden and Haunts of Nyvon pretty horrifying. Mm. <clears throat> but yeah, basically, a, a good three quarters of the book is saying these stories probably aren't as bad as their reputation deserves. Mm. And the only reason, really, a lot of them are down at the bottom of the pile is because the other things further up the pile are even better. Yeah. And for me, if if a story is as bad as its reputation, I I kind of tried to find reasons for it beyond <clears throat> dodgy well, sets yeah. or bad acting. Well, if yeah. there's some sort of ethics <clears throat> behind them or some ethos, like the dom- I did The Dominators, which is a kind of an anti-pacifist story that flies against... Doctor Who, it flies against the spirit of Doctor Who. Well, except it's a little bit like the Daleks. Well, I think the Daleks flies, except the Daleks is excusable because the spirit of Doctor Who hadn't been... Invented, yeah, formed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, going back to that old chestnut of, you know, that idea that you always, you've always said, which is that nobody ever sets sets out to make a bad Doctor Who story. Hmm. Are there any in there where you think, oh, yeah. oh actually, it oh, was no, 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 pretty no. rotten from the start? Oh, Time Lash. Time Lash is one. Yeah. Well, Time, time Lash... They didn't set out to make a bad Doctor Who story. It was just edited. I mean, actually, it's just no, nobody it just cared. Terrible. It was, mm. yeah. There was padding at the beginning, padding at the end, and not very much in between. It was Some, like a bread sandwich. Because <laughs> the complete quote is, nobody ever sets out to make a bad Doctor Who story. Sometimes it just happens. Yeah. And of course, that that was the thing about the book. If 
you think the story is better than its reputation deserves, say so and say why. If you don't think the story is better than its reputation deserves, say so, but again, say why. Say what the factors are that you think, uh, you know, lead to it not being better than its reputation deserves. Mm. So really, I mean, my idea for this book was that basically it would be a history of Doctor Who but sort of through the back door. Mm. You get all these books. There was one a couple of years ago, the top 50 Doctor Who stories, and they were telling a Doctor Who history through the best mm. 50. So, uh, but I've always thought that it's more interesting to talk about things that don't necessarily work and try and understand why those don't think those things don't work than it is, obviously, to look at things that do work. Because if something works, then that just means, I don't know, you've oiled to the gears or whatever. If something doesn't work, well, then why didn't you oil the gears? Whose responsibility was it to oil the gears? Why did somebody, nobody tell that person to oil the gears, etc., etc.? It becomes a more interesting story. Mm. So I thought it would be a more interesting history of Doctor Who to talk about. And this is why I made sure there was one from every season. Talk about the whole sort of panoply of 53 years of history or whatever it is now. Fascinating. It's far more interesting in some respects than, the, as you say, the best of. When you think about it, you've got a whole multi-million dollar movies that are made that come out with that same yeah. <laughs> that yeah. same outcome of being truly terrible. And you think, who was who was who wasn't talking to who? You know, incredible. Well, I guess the, the top fifty best of stories serves another purpose, which is for new people approaching the series. Yeah, sort of give yeah. them a guide recommendation to, yeah. rather than being for fans. Well, and that's what Whereas that book was. This is kind yeah. of deep deep diving for fans do you know what this book really is is that over the past sort of 15 years there have been lots of academic tomes about doctor who and i always starting with the unfolding text but there have been loads since Mm. but and i really want to enjoy these books but they're written in such a dense academic style that it's difficult to get to grips with them Mm. to read them for pleasure yeah and so what I really wanted to do was something like that, that the average man in the street could read for pleasure. Mm-hmm. So this is... I read them for pleasure. Yeah, I know you do, but you're <laughs> not quite the same as the rest of us. No, no, I'm unusual. <laughs> but that was what it was. I just wanted to write something. Yeah. I just wanted there to be a book. It's like the About Time books. Yeah, yeah. That This is the About Time books yeah. stripped of... Because the About Time books are like 10 pages of information the, for three pages of the about analysis. Time book, the About Time books are academic level insights, but with a human voice. So you can hear the personalities of the people you're, that are writing. And that's and, what this is. And with academic books, the personality can get often get stripped out yeah. because that's what they're trained to do. Well, this is 10 different personalities, yeah, each yeah. with a different approach. Yes. Writing along academic lines... Mm but not in an academic style. Although Beth Ward does at times, and you do at times, of course. So there's yes, some of that yeah. in there. But there's a variety in there. But it's it's the About Time books, stripped of pages and pages and pages of information, mm. and just left with context. That was yeah. one of the big things I wanted to do. But I wanted to contextualise Doctor Who within itself. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that people often do is contextualise Doctor Who with what's going on around it. And while obviously that is a massive, massive factor, everybody's done that. Mm-hmm. But I quite wanted to do a book that contextualises Doctor Who within itself. 
Because right. one of the things I've always one of the things I've always said is the Dalek invasion of Earth is the point at which Doctor Who changes because it breaks a fundamental rule of the program, which is that the TARDIS must always land somewhere entirely new. In the Dalek invasion of Earth, okay, so it lands somewhere entirely new, but the important factor is it brings back the Daleks, which is something that should never have happened, according to the original format. And that's where Doctor Who changes. But that contextualises Doctor Who within its own historical timeline. Mm. And that's kind of what I wanted to do as well. Mm. Anyway, there's going to be two further books in this series, but this one's out now. Hating to Love would be on Amazon and what have you. That probably leads quite well onto The Three Doctors. Which is in Hating to Love. Is it really? It's one of the surprise choices. I think, Matt, you should write a book called The Rings of Academic. (laughs) (laughs) I should. should. The Rings of Academe. The Three Doctors is in Hating to Love. John Davis writes about it. I think it was his choice. I think John Davis approached the subject of the book with the idea that he was going to be Mr. Controversial. Okay. So he has to do Turn Left and The Three Doctors. Fair enough. For the reason that one of the other things the book does is it takes things that were not necessarily unsuccessful, but that were so different from the norm that it tries to understand them, or Mm. at least that was the idea. So Turn Left is like that. And The Three Doctors, of course, and this is one of the reasons why we're talking about it, is the first time you get, well, not an anniversary story with Three Doctors in... But near as damn it, for the 10th season, mm-hmm. they start. So, the three Doctors, I mean, when was the last time any of us watched it, Simon? Can um, you remember? Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. It's one that I go back to. So, I got my special edition DVD out. It was probably about four months ago, three, four months ago. Oh, really? Mm. You didn't see it on first broadcast, though? So you, no. the first time you'd have seen it, well, the first time you'd have encountered it would probably have been the Target book. Uh, Five Faces. Yeah, it was repeated, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah but Although, the Target book had been around for about seven yeah, years. but I had not come across it in the library. I used to get Target books out the library at that stage. And then when it was on TV, and then I went straight to the newsagents and bought the book of it. Ah, so you liked it? I loved it. Ah, uh, fair enough. But we'll get back more into that, Matt. I can't remember when I last saw it all the way through. I watched the first episode. It's the sort of story where I think I'm going to like it. Then I watch the first episode and I fall off a cliff <laughs> and just lose interest. And so I sort of move on to other stories. So it's been a while since I've seen it all the way through. When was the first time then? It must have been when the video first came out. I probably got it. It might have even been... They dropped the video down to 7.9. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I might have got it then, I think. Yeah, yeah. So mid nineties, I guess. Well, I saw. It. In fact, I might have seen it on the fight. I might have seen the five faces of Doctor Who. Yeah, I can't remember that particular one. I don't think. Well, I would have seen it on broadcast, but I've no memory of seeing it on broadcast. Mm. It's weird how something like the Daleks or the Sea Devils sticks with you, but the fact that it's got three Doctors in doesn't. Well, they're less memorable. For <laughs> yeah, they are you when know. you're a kid, and you wouldn't have remembered Troughton at that point. No, so absolutely. as far as you're concerned. It's not, he's not a frightening presence. He's sort of... Well, and when you're four, you're not following yeah. the story. No. So you don't even know who those no. three blokes are. You're just yeah. watching it for the monsters and the weirdness. Mm. So the first time I properly saw it would have been Five Faces. Mm. And I had already read the book about half a dozen times by that point. Right. So, so, and that was the thing. The Target books kind of lead you for a downfall, don't they? 
build you up for a downfall. Well, okay, but one of my first experiences of revisiting old Doctor Who was buying Day of the Daleks and Death to the Daleks on VHS when they first came out mm. in the God mid late mid nineteen eighties. Yeah, so like there must be yeah. And having read the Target books over and over and over, mm. I was expecting Star Wars, mm-hmm. and a Star Wars ain't quite what I got. <laughs> the Three Doctors. When it was on in the Five Faces, I was by that time well old enough to appreciate dodgy special effects, <laughs> yes. you know, small sets, things like the change between film and videotape. Mm-hmm. So the Three Doctors, even then, was a bit of a shock to the system. Yes, but <coughs> having said that, I think there's a lot to like about it. But I'm more interested now to find out what Matt thinks, having had the first episode and dropped off a cliff experience. Um, I, I was looking for things to like about it. I'm also trying to think about why why I felt it dropped off a cliff. I mean, the things that I like about it, Troughton, because he's just having so much fun in the role, and also Pertwee, who, who's obviously. Do you think Pertwee rises to Troughton? No, I think he. I think he's hating every every moment of being in the story. <laughs> And I take <coughs> such pleasure. There's, there is a degree of pleasure in seeing Pertwee in pain or, or suffering in these stories because the character is so pompous that particularly, say, with his later stories when he's clearly wearing a back brace and he's sort of struggling to run, you can take pleasure, <laughs> pleasure from that <laughs> because it's kind, of, it's kind of like seeing Pertwee suffering and seeing Troughton riffing on that. He knows that he's winding Pertwee up and he's doing it to sort of to sort of build up tension, and that tension comes across, and that's really good. Well, it's supposed to be there as well, yeah. of course. It's in the script. Yeah. I mean, it, this, this script doesn't have the two of them being the best of mates, so no. yeah. if that's happening exactly. between the actors, then mm-hmm. it's just playing into what's supposed to be happening. One of the things I thought, watching Pertwee in this, was that he was really Pertweeing it. Mm. It's like... Because, you know... And I suppose if you're not the cleverest of actors or whatever, I don't know how to describe it, Mm. you're going to fall into certain line deliveries and things like that. Yeah. And I get the impression in this that every time Pertwee gets a line where he can do a Pertwee on it or he can give it some instinct, he gives it the full Pertwee. Well, also, there's a slight... Because I watched it with the information text on, because I do that nowadays... Famously, Troughton didn't stick to his lines. He kind yeah. of he kind of evolved his lines, whereas Pertwee stuck to his lines. So there's a sense that Pertwee isn't actually talking to anybody when Troughton's talking to him. Like he's he's responding with the lines, and Troughton's just going off on one slightly. And then there's, so there's that sort of disjoint. And I it's think it's not that noticeable in the. I mean, it doesn't spoil it. No. Oh no, I don't. I think it makes it. I think that's one of the. That's mm. one of the good things about it. But it doesn't make it feel... <laughs> but what it what it doesn't do is it doesn't make it feel like the actors are taking the piss out of the material or something. Because, yeah. I mean, sometimes if that happens, it's like they're both acting in a different production. And this wasn't quite that. No, I think that those performances are fine. And actually all the performances are fine. The characterisation was a bit off. And also it's slightly spoiled by the fact that we've had a Three Doctors story now that was like groundbreaking that was day of the doctor and that's yeah. that's how you do a, a three doctor story this one 
wasn't quite. It was sort of two doctors together and Troughton wasn't quite the second doctor. He was sort of playing a version of the second doctor. I didn't think he was that different, though. He was starting I don't think to be, he was yeah. not quite two doctors, five well. No. Not quite that territory yet. It's recent enough that he's been the doctor that he falls back into it. Yeah. And I think maybe if Pertry's doing a Pertry on it, then mm. what's happening as well is Troughton's doing a Troughton on it. Although oddly the the first shot of Troughton in it is on the view when the Time Lords are looking for him and they see him on the viewing screen running through a corridor uh, through a quarry. And that looks exactly like it's taken from his era. Yeah, yeah. There's something about that, and he never recaptures that. There's something about <clears throat> Troughton on his own there. Well, I'll tell you what's happened. feels like the second Doctor. He's stripped of his companions. Yeah. Because most of what Patrick mm. Troughton brought to being Doctor Who was there because of the people he was working mm. with. And I think most of his, whatever quality it is that he brings to the screen... It's there because he's being the guy who looks after Jamie and Victoria and Zoe. Yeah. He's always been that slightly odd, mm. but in some ways slightly patrician character, not a yeah. tutor. There are moments when he's like talking to Joe that you get a little, a little inkling of what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also Pertwee's personality is this kind of upright, he's abrasive. moral, abrasive. And Troughton could be like that. When he was the second Doctor, but because Pertwee takes on that role, Troughton takes on the rest, which is all the kind of light Troughtony stuff. How it feels to me is it's the second Doctor on his day off. Yeah, yeah. But you need that. It's like he's having a load of fun being there. He's just happy to be back. But you need the two sides. You need him to have that kind of slightly abrasive, occasional dramatic moment to make sense of the comedy moments because the whole point of his character is. He's putting on the comedy in well, order the twist to disguise there is the kind of the serious, kind mm. of that he is, except in the body of John Pertwee. Yeah, yeah. So and that kind of so you get two halves of a Doctor rather than two Doctors. Yeah, you do really. Which, but then you kind of less, have to. Well, it's, yeah. it's the same in the day of the Doctor. You don't get to see Tennant's dark side in that either. No. So no, I don't think Tennant is is. It's a very different Tenth Doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, it might be a, a symptom of. Multi Doctor stories, which I guess it has to be, yeah, because each could one be time, to... just time away from the part. I mean, the, different the, writer, yes. The advantage, all... of, the advantage of Day of the Doctor is it's saved by Moffat's writing, so you've got Moffat's characteristic dialogue and the humour, and that works across <clears> the board. Well, that's it. Here, that... Bob Baker, Dave Martin, I was going to say, have the zingy. That's the segue into talking about the script. Mm. Well. Simon, go on. The story, the three doctors. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think? <laughs> Not so much the performances and the production. We'll talk about the production in a minute, but the story itself. I really like it. I really like it. There, there was a lot. Well, put it another way. There, there's lots of elements in there which completely appeal to my imagination as a child. I love the idea of things being picked up and and being plop, plopped elsewhere. And the building going and sections of the building going. So when it appeared at the other end, it all came back together again. And yeah, I, I just loved that. I just thought it tweaked the childish imagination, really, which I think is kind of a... It's Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably it. Well, that's, that's it. it. And then, I mean, the, the, the other thing I was going to say about Three Doctors is that obviously I was reading Doctor Who Weekly and things like that. So I'd read 
about the story so much that it was one of those things that I'd always wanted to see. So when it came along, it, for me, it, it kind of fulfilled all of that, really. It is, and this is because of the production, it's one of those stories that is seminal in where it sits in the series and what it does for the series. Because from this point forwards, the whole notion that the Doctors can meet each other is something that now has precedence. It's a, it's a weird one because they kind of reverse engineered it as an anniversary story. So they pretended it was a 10th anniversary story, whereas... Actually, really it was just get... there to start the 10th yeah, season. Yeah. But... Which is which is one of Letts's, one of Barry Letts's strengths, is he knew how to kick off a, seri- a season with something that would grab the headlines. But the reason he did do it that year was because it was the 10th series. Yeah. yeah. So he did know... It, so although it wasn't for the anniversary, mm. it was for the fact that the number 10 had arrived. Yeah, it wasn't quite like the two Doctors where no. they, they finally found a reason which was, was it the 100th Target book or something. That was, <laughs> that was their excuse for having the two Doctors. I don't, uh, yeah, no, I think yeah. you're back with engineering now. No, no, that's what they did. They reverse engineered it. They released it as the 100th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Right, but the story of the three Doctors, and I've talked about this before, so, but... It does something huge. Yeah. It introduces a renegade Time Lord. Yes. But not like the Time Meddler, who's just somebody who's gone off into the universe to have fun. It's somebody who is fundamental to the fact that there are Time Lords and fundamental, well, fundamental to the fact that the series can exist. Tardises and such forth. We're introduced as a Time Lord legend. Exactly. Which, which that's the that's the new thing. Well, the odd thing that it does, though, is that after showing us godlike Time Lords at the end of the War Games, mm. it gives us Omega, who's gone off and become a god by accident because he's been banished into this alternative universe, and then gives us half a dozen really mundane middle-aged men sitting around computer consoles in a room. Mm. <laughs> which is what Robert Holmes got in trouble for, basically, in The Deadly Assassin. The, the Gallifrey we see in The Three Doctors has got naffle to do with the Gallifrey we see in The War Games. Yeah. But the weird thing is, the Omega <laughs> we see in The Three Doctors is exactly what we would have been expecting to see of a Time Lord. I think the story, I think I agree, the story is really a good one. Mm. And it has so much promise. And, you know... It's got. It starts on Earth. It's got unit. It's got the time world. So it's got a sense of, you know, scale and planet hopping and dimension hopping, but just the execution. It's a production. Every, everything about it is taken this scale and it's reduced it to a quarry or a CSO effect or a small room or the the lumpy the lumpy jelly monsters. It takes the mythic and makes it prosaic. Yeah, but I think <laughs> we're slowly. We're slowly ruining Simon's life. No, I don't think it does. No, because because uh, I have a real affection for it. It's one of those yeah. where it's almost um, critique proof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I was going to really? get to this in the end. I don't think it does because for an eight-year-old, it still works. Yeah. Before a non-eight-year-old, mm. any story, Genesis of the Daleks, Inferno, whatever, still has all the same issues. Mm. So this is just another story with a grand mythic scale no. and the same production issues as... I think the flip side of this would be something like Logopolis, which doesn't really have a story at all, but it's executed in, with such a sort of an operatic style and a series of such sort of memorable set pieces that actually 
actually that's what makes Legopolis feel like a special feels like a special episode. This is Wait, something so I that, don't agree with any of that. <laughs> no, no. But I remember I mean I remember Legopolis when it was on and I remember it as a series of set pieces of Tardises inside Tardises, shrinking yeah, yeah. Tardises. I know the first you episode's know, good. The set, then even the that. setting of Legopolis itself, I mean compared with compared with Omega's base, it feels like yeah. Well, yeah, no, that's just fit. Whereas this yeah. this should have been Grand. At least like that. I but think to an eight-year-old, though, or a seven-year-old, six-year-old, whatever, somebody who's not quite got the critical awareness yet to notice the change from VT to film, I think it does. One of the things that people always talk about is when you get to Omega's realm and how it should have been grand and splendid and all this kind of stuff, you know, opulent. Mm. But actually, if this guy's been there for presumably thousands of years, he's given up caring. Mm. So there's sort of an in-fiction reason for it all to be a bit bland because he just doesn't care anymore. Yes. Maybe he should put out the effort now that he's got guests, but maybe (laughs) he's just given up caring to the extent that he doesn't even do that. I think that falls into the category of they they suspend the storage logic to make it a bit more impressive, just to to make them... But yeah. Sometimes bland is bland even if it is... But I don't think to an eight-year-old's eyes it is bland. Mm. I think it's just... Okay, so it's more of the same sort of corridors and things. But there's a slightly odd design in the style of the doorways and the shapes Mm. of the corridors and things like that. I was thinking it's really quite Flash Gordon. But actually, it's just occurred to me that that story would fit in perfectly in 1960s Star Trek. Mm -hmm. It's no different to like Charlie X, where they go to a planet and find somebody who's got godlike powers. Mm. Who who can just make things happen with a thought. Mm -hmm. Very, very similar. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But I quite, going back to the subject of the corridors and that, yeah, through an adult's eyes, they do look awful. Mm. And some of the special effects as well, CSO, when you've got the door about to magically appear. And I love the slimy thing. No, I think disappear. the CSO and that effect they're using on the, oh, really? on the blog. Oh, we'll get back to that in a minute. Works really well. Yeah. Oh, some of it, well, works relatively well, shall we say. Well, no, I just think that, that, Compared to the effects of today, because it does look slightly different and it is that kind of top of the pops thing going on. But I think it's quite effective there because I suppose I'd be able to use my imagination and think, well, maybe it would look that kind of yeah. weirdly day glow. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's supposed to be. I still wonder how they did it. After all. Yes. I'm well, sure, yeah. Were they just dragging a hanky down a plug hole? <laughs> yeah, that's how they did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A magician's hanging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how they did it. Yeah. One of those little creatures you used to get in the 70s. Do you remember? It had a string and it had a... What was it oh, called? Yeah, it goes over your hands. Yeah, so yeah. Like, yeah. And somebody yeah. would be selling them in the street. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Go between your fingers. Like a feather type thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This was, it was like a little brush, like a caterpillar, wasn't it, with the little mm. eyes on the end. Yes. Well, there we go. Well, speaking of those sorts of things, the gel guards... Yeah. Yeah, although they're not actually named on screen, but that's what appeared in all the. I love their eye. Yeah, the the eye's good, and actually the looks good. It's the mute, it's the movement, the noise, yeah. and the appearance. The shuffling, yeah. Good. I like the claw though. Yeah, the claw's good. Yeah, yeah I think they look terrific yes. in photos. Yeah, the little lights yeah. going, is it like a yeah, yeah. aeroplane runway? Yeah, goes down yeah. there. Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah. not too bad. But the the movement, the sound, <laughs> yeah, and the appearance effect. Just. Oh, God. Well, they just sort of 
literally it's cut from a shot where it's not there to shot where it is. Yeah. That's shocking. Yeah. yeah. That's Rust on Warrior Robot bad. Except I love the Rust on Except it works with the Rust on Warrior <laughs> Robot. I really I think like the Rust on Robot. There's something about because he jumps before he moves that makes the effect. I think work. it makes it worse. I think because he's lied, he jumps when he moves. Whereas but I think these, because he jumps, boom, boom, boom. But it's, I think because he jumps, he should fade. Like something out of because jigsaw. he's picking up speed. <laughs> right. Whereas these. <laughs> oh. Yes. The music in this is atrocious <laughs> as well. The Bessie driving music. That's, that's, is that one of his themes that's been reused in various stories for Bessie? I don't know. I think I'd have noticed. No, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Just, it sounded familiar to me, but that might just have been from having watched it so yeah, many times. Yeah. It's just, ooh, yes. But it's uh, a good but story. Then I think <laughs> most of Dudley Simpson's music's pretty awful anyway, most of the time. I, I, the thing I picked up on was at the end when they're going through the, the smoke thing. Yes. There's a sound going in the background that sort of goes, and I don't know whether it's the sound of the smoke machine or whether it's been added. Right. But but when they walk through, it literally goes bling. It just gives yeah. a little wow. like something out of Cinderella or something. Yeah, or like something out of uh, 1970s Doctor Who. Yeah. Going back to the subject of this story for a minute, I think what uh, I think what really knackers this one, for want of a better expression. No, I don't mean in a bad way, Simon. Okay. <laughs> Na- knackered in a good way. Ooh. <laughs> no, I mean, what makes it prosaic instead of mythic right. yeah. is the whole Barry Letts, Terence Dix, I call it Last of the Summer Wine in Space. It's this whole thing where the first scene, and this is from the Baker Boys, right, who just the year previously did Pigbin Josh. Yeah. So Mr. Ollis and his wife are a step up from Pigbin Bot. Yeah, Pigbin exactly. Josh. Yeah. But they ain't a great step up from Pigbin Josh. Yeah. And then the scientist, I can't even remember his name. Uh, yes, uh, him. The, yeah, comes in and it's like, and he's all a bit sort of nice chap, not a lot going on. Mm. He's this scientist and he's just, he's playing it as, it's a great performance, but he's playing him as just a little bit dense. But yeah. this is what I meant yeah. about the execution. They open yeah. this big story with such a grounded small scene and really for for a story called the three doctors that have been that's been trailed it needs to open i mean even the two doctors opened in a better way than and I, well it should I open the two doctors is a great story but it opened with the shot of the second doctor or with a shot of omega or something or the time lords just to give a sense of scale first then you get to the sort of the grounded mm. i don't this know felt, this felt like I quite like spiders. I quite like the idea of that. Mm. That you think you're expecting something operatic and instead you get something really mundane. Mm. But it's just the level of, and I, there's a better expression than the level of humor. There's a sense of, there's a sense of personality that runs right through Terence Dix and Barry Letts's work where nobody's quite, everybody just ever so slightly a genial caricature of what that person would really be like. Well, they're very keen on poachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gamekeepers. Yeah. So <laughs> but I mean, if you had an actual it. poacher, yeah. he'd be a nasty piece of work. Uh, Whereas the... Well, 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 do you know what I mean? 
Throughout Terence Dix and Barry Letts' five years, there are no actual nasty pieces of work. Everybody's just ever so slightly genial. Yes, Even, yeah. And this is why I mean, you get... In a sense, poachers are just working-class gamekeepers, if you think about it. They're gamekeepers <laughs> without the money or the job. Right, so I perhaps phrased it wrong. Yeah, yeah. But what I mean is, if you had an actual poacher, yeah. he'd be going out about his business they, yeah, with they, a professional killing air. They take the Ealing comedy approach yeah. to, to comedy yes. country characters. Well, that's but it. I don't think it's quite as bad here as it was in Claws of Axos or Spearhead from Space, which is also guilty of this. But it works in Spearhead from Space because... <laughs> He's because the other elements Celia aren't quite doing it yet. Ri- but also Celia is such a rich character and actually quite well performed. But he's a he's a slightly nasty piece. I mean, he's a thief. Yes, this is before so, Barry Letts and Terence... Yeah. Well, Terence Dix is there, but this is before Barry Letts has joined him. Yeah. And they become complicit in sort of geeing one another up to yeah. do more of this yeah. sort of thing. True, but, actually, because Hollis could have been... I could have done loads with that character. Mm. But actually, He's not actually there for any reason apart from being the first person to go. Yeah. And then he bumps into the brigadier and says, Oh, Arr, what's going on here? Yeah. And the brigadier yeah. says, Well, I think we're in Chroma. Yes. And he bri- says, this is, the other, this is the other notorious thing about it. It's the brigadier, brigadier. Suddenly, suddenly changes character in this story. I don't and think that's quite quite his, true. His reluctance, his reluctance to believe that two doctors could be there at the same time. And his reluctance to believe that the TARDIS can travel. That's a but, little bit strange. Well, yeah, but that is two lines in the story. It's not his whole characterization in the story. But what I mean is, given his scepticism throughout about various things, mm. the fact that he could have to struggle with the idea of two doctors being there at the same time, that I can go with. Yeah. And the fact that he struggles with the idea that the TARDIS can travel... Well, he's only ever seen the Doctor on Earth. Yeah. So he doesn't quite know what the Doctor gets up to when he's not around. But it doesn't beg about my belief so much that the Brigadier would think, well, he's lying when he says he goes into Earth's space. The Brigadier's seen lots of monsters, right? Yes. But the monsters all come to Earth. Yeah. So the Brigadier doesn't have any experience of outer space. Yes. So I'm not... I don't find that as big an issue as other people do. No. I still think he's seen the TARDIS disappear in front of him. <clears throat> and once you've seen that, you can probably... Yeah, but I, I mean, think I've got, more, I've got more of a problem with him. Him, He can't believe that he's, he maintains this belief that his Doctor has somehow regressed into the old yeah, Doctor yeah. again, despite the fact Benton tells him otherwise, Joe Grant tells him otherwise, and even when he's on almost face with both Doctors at the same time, he's still disbelieving him. And I think, I'm not, I'm not quite sure where that comes from. I'm not sure why he needs to do that other than... Well, as, retrospectively, as they show the Brigadier in Planet of the Spiders mm. with something of a fondness for conjuring tricks and the like. Yeah. You know, I retrospectively, that's retconning it. So the, the Brigadier has presumably always thought that a lot of the stuff that the Doctor talks about is nonsense and he's actually just doing magic tricks. I, I don't have as big an issue with the Brigadier as with the fact that he's just the symptom of what the whole production's doing. Yeah. And I don't think it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm saying they've knackered it, but they haven't ruined it. What I mean is they've turned something that could have been utterly seminal mm. into something that's just a little bit naff. 
in exactly the same way as every other story between 1971 and 1974 were just a little bit naff, mm. with the possible exception, but probably not thinking about it, of the Malcolm Hulk ones. Mm. There's a... Well, you said it. They eat, they they do Doctor Who slightly in the style of Ealing, don't they? Yes, they do bits of it. Yeah, and or as I put it, last of the summer wine in space on Earth. Yeah, yeah, and possibly more charitable. Yeah, but I, but there's, I never get a really a sense of threat in Barrylet stories, even the better ones, even. I don't know, the Green Death or whatever. Mm. And this is perhaps why I like the Robert Holmes ones the best, because they don't actually intend to give you a sense of threat, but they're actually making fun of the fact that there's a sense of threat sometimes. It's kind of drawing on the Avengers as well, because yeah, yeah. The, not the, the British, the proper Avengers. With the, the 60s the, Avengers. The, the actual Avengers rather than the, the American stuff. Um, the American Avengers were in the 60s as well. Yes, exactly. I was just going to yeah. say they probably preceded <laughs> it's, it. It's a bit they? like the, the John Steed Avengers. Avengers. <clears throat> um, whereas that that sense of that always had a sort of an offset sense of threat as well. There was because the characters were so kind of everybody's got above, a twinkle in their eye above yeah. the danger. Mm. You never got the sense that John Steed was ever very frightened. Occasionally, he'd have dramatic moments, but in the end, it was sort of always reset. Mm. And this is the great thing about it, is that just like that, it's fun to watch. Mm. Yeah. But if you're not... And I, and I suppose if you're somewhere between the ages of four and nine or something, you're going to find it terribly impressive. Mm-hmm. But watching it through an adult's eyes, you can't help but be struck by the fact that there's not really a very great sense of danger anymore. No, no. Yeah. And the other thing with that is, as well, is that that's not offsetting the production problems anymore. No. So you, so the Three Doctors, ultimately, is a story that you have to... Suspend disbelief is the wrong expression for, but you have to suspend... <laughs> you kind of have to... Well, you've got to suspend something. Yeah. It's very easy to enjoy, yeah. but it's very difficult to take it too kinda seriously. Kind of get into yeah. cartoon mode. Mm. Yeah, yeah, basically. Mm. But you like it. You also like... You like things like Claws of Axos, don't you? Claws of Axos, I don't know that well. I, I was about to watch it. You said, but, you, but because you said cartoon mode, it reminded me of when we were talking about mm. you. You like the stories that feel, particularly Bob Baker, Dave Martin, feel like graphic stories. Like they, they feel like annual stories. Yeah, 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 which I think are the best. Which is, I keep coming back to the Terror of the Autons. Mm. So, that's Claws of Axos. Yeah. Oh, Terror of the, yeah, yeah and Terror of the, the Autons you, is, yeah. actually, Terror of the Autons is funny, because that's Robert Holmes taking the mickey out of that approach, mm. while setting the precedent for that approach, mm. which is yeah. a very strange sort of combination. Yeah. But Clause of Axos is probably the absolute zenith stroke nadir of that approach. Mm. <laughs> it's mm. the one where it's at its most obvious. Yeah. You've got characters like Chin in there. Yeah. But, and this is three dog, it's like, why on earth? Barry Letts and Terence Dick say, okay, these two guys have written this one story that took a lot of work getting in front of the cameras. And I think it's a bit of a sort of paradigm Doctor Who story. But by the same token, it is not in anybody's estimation a very good Doctor Who story. Why did they say to them, you guys be the ones to bring these three Doctors together? Mm. When you had... 
Terry Sticks' great friend Malcolm Hulk. You had who would go on to be Terry Sticks' great friend and the guy he mentored, Robert Holmes. You had Robert Sloman and Barry Letts writing a story a year. Hmm. Why on earth did none of these guys get the job of writing the Three Doctors? It's the most odd decision, isn't it? I think, and I don't know whether this is because they've only written one story before, but their ideas for that story were quite mythic ideas. They were quite mm. big ideas. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's what was needed. And in a right. sense, in a sense, their that approach works. Is, works for the yeah. three doctors. They have quite mythic ideas. The idea of Omega in a in a sanctum in an antimatter <laughs> universe. The idea of Unit HQ disappearing at one end and then appearing at the other. These are really big. These are like anniversary special ideas. Yeah. It's just they didn't, they didn't work. They <laughs> didn't done look it. Done in the very shoe good. Box. Yeah. And in the end, you just got people stood round talking to Stephen Thorne. And that's... Nice glass shots of the uh, cave entrance, though, yes, for yeah, what it's worth. Yeah. Mm. That's like, something they did well. Yeah. What did you think of Stephen Thorne, then? I, I like Stephen Thorne. But then I used to listen to, I used to listen, listen to the Brother Cadfile novels. And he, and he used read to them? narrate them. Yeah, mm. I used to listen to them all walking to college. So that voice is he's, very comforting. He's great when he's doing Stephen Thorne quiet. Yes, he's commanding enough when he's doing Stephen Thorne noisy. Mm. But it, yeah, no, a, I can go with it. Is there a Stephen Thorne screaming bit at the end, which might just yeah. tip into <laughs> tip into overacting? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stephen Thorne was a czar, like as well in the demons, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. So, and there's a lot of overacting in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you sort of think, you know, oh, he's been on his own for thousands of years. What? Yeah. You're gonna go one way or the other, aren't you? You're gonna be, either become. To, to be honest, he's I think got his gel guards for company. I think yes. a, bit of, a bit of overacting was what the story needed. Yeah, yeah. To give it a little bit more sort of oomph and lift, and yeah, and also, you know, th- this is a person from. Time Lord history who's larger than life and is just this massive, mm. massive I tell you, presence. The moment where he takes his helmet off and there's no head there, mm. which is another eye patch yes. moment. Or what's the one in the new series <laughs> that know. people? Oh, I love the bit they lift up the mask at the front and they go, oh, and they look at it and go, oh my god, and it just goes straight down. There's it's a bit like the Scaros moment as well, where Mrs. Scaros. Should have known. Doesn't doesn't realise her husband is actually green and tentacly underneath. Maybe that's what she likes about him. Well, possibly, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those moments. It's when you first see it. It's or when you first, if you've read it before seeing it, it's like oh. Mm. But actually, if you stop to think about it at all, it's like. There's huh? <laughs> <laughs> one of the good lines in it. Is it? You will need a mask like this. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't they have a mask like that when he came back in the 1980s? Good, that is a great design. That's a John Friedlander, isn't it? Mm. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Because they comes back caring a... in the 1980s? God, no. Comes back as a chrysalis. Yeah, yeah. What What the hell was that all about? I like that as well, though. Do you? But again, yeah, but that looked better than the Andrew Skeletor um, painting. Did yeah, because in... On camera, it just looks really rubbery. Mm, mm. Whereas actually, Omega's costume, the mask and the gauntlets and that, looks, for want of a better word, authentic. Mm-hmm. It looks good. It's a really good design and it's really well executed. 
yeah. is one of the most successful things executed in the episode. Mm. And the gel guards, I think, you know, apart from their physical presence, mm. that's well executed as well. That's such an odd, startling creature design, the bubbles. I tell you what I do love. I love the idea of the recorder as a device. That's that's. I the, just wish... The fact they see the more of an exp- than, yeah. yeah. But I just wish it had got into that device... Somehow, yeah. was it dragged off by a rat? I don't, I don't know. No, he dropped it in the TARDIS in an earlier episode, and then he actually mentions, "I don't know where my recorder's gone." Yeah, and I know dropped that. It somewhere. Yeah, but it's not going to bounce it's... up into that box, is it? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Did they take it out of the TARDIS console? Being really... if he yeah, they it took it out of the console, console and put it in the box. I think didn't they? Oh, no, no, think, no, they, no they looked under. They look under the console, and there it is, sitting in there perfectly. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah well, yeah. that's just a production thing, isn't it? Yeah. The um the fight sequence between Pertwee and the dark side of Omega's mind just goes That's, on forever. I know, and it's it's kind of Pertwee doing a forward roll, then the, the other guy chunts doing a forward roll, and it's one of those. Oh yeah, fight. and because it's done in black and white, it reminded me a bit of that, isn't there? Because oh, it's colored. slow, slow, it's colored. It's slow, sorry, slow motion. I meant. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, but like, but it's mo- very monochromatic. Like monster mm, sort of. Monster Peloton is the one with a completely pointless. No curse. No, oh, it's monster, isn't it? There's a completely pointless fight sequence in a pit. No, it's Curse. Are you sure? Yeah, there may be another one in Monster, but there's one in Curse. Okay. There was definitely a bad one in Monster. Oh, is Where there? you can yeah. see see Terry Walsh's face full on. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, <laughs> that just shows how much Monster repeats from Curse, because yeah. there's one in Curse as well. Okay. Oh, it I... does go on, though, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does pan yes. out the end yeah. of it. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. But then... I'd, know, rather see, I'd rather see Troughton... In that fight sequence, that would be more fun. Mm. Well, you'd but, just be running away. But you sort of get the impression that maybe it's almost like Pertwee's, Pertwee's got a list of, okay, we can have Troughton here. As long as I But I, I get. need a fight sequence where yes. it's just me yeah. on film. <laughs> I need a moment of charm where yeah. I do some magic tricks. I, yeah, need some yeah, time, yeah. I need some time with Katie Manning just on my own so yeah. I can, so, you know. So I can no, be the doctor. Yeah. Mm. And that, yeah. Hartnell. It's very, very disappointing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it works surprisingly well, though. It kind considering. of... It kind of does. Work. I mean, it doesn't... It works better than Tom Baker and the Five Doctors. You you get the impression that they, they had a reasonable explanation for it and the execution of it was fair enough. But it's really sad seeing mm. William Hartnell just... And I'd rather... and. It's a weird choice to have him on screens like that when they filmed him. So you could. I'd like to see the the, the actual film footage. That they, I was thinking that, yeah. Was Why couldn't they just afternoon. cut to him mm. and show him on film so you could see him properly rather than these weird... I mean, it's a, it's a distancing thing which kind of works. but mm. Mm. And also on DVD, you can see the reflection of the camera crew yeah. standing yeah. behind everybody, which doesn't help because no. it's distracting you from yeah. the bare few minutes you do actually get of William Hartnell. Yeah. One thing I've never understood is how they there's this assumption that because he's the oldest... In theory. Well, I was just about to bring that up. That he knows more than they do. Well, he's the yeah. youngest, isn't he's he? He's the youngest, so yeah. yeah. Pertwee's the most experienced. He's the one who should have the answers. Yeah. But they've always done it. I mean, this is... Yeah, yeah. But that's actually quite a pleasing contradiction that they do. So they even do it's it kind in, of day, in Day of the thing, Doctor. In the, five, in the Five Doctors, it's it's Hartnell who mm. comes up with the, sort of, the first Doctor who comes up with the solution. And so it does... Sort of, 
it does play into my contention that each time the Doctor regenerates, there's an actual new person. Mm. So if Hartnell's lived an actual full life, as opposed to all the others who've had them cut short, he would be the one who's actually personally got the most experience. So like the, old, the old Matt Smith would be the most experienced of all the Doctors. Would be now, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I, I will contend always that it's a, new, a brand new, actual brand new person. Actually, yeah, because <clears> when, re- when he regenerates, there's always that period of learning, isn't there? Yeah, and they say every cell in the body changes, which mm. means that it's a different person afterwards than it was before. Would it have been improved if Hartnell had been in it properly? If he'd been, you know, actually there in the sets, in all the scenes? I, would, would that have been I too think, much? I think it would have been improved, but they couldn't have had all three characters in the whole thing. But I think there's space for for Hartnell to be in it. I mean, it would have been a massive rejig of the story. I mean, you could say also, would it? What would have happened if Jamie had been in it? Well, he was instead of John yeah. Levine. So that's yeah. But if Arnold had been in there, you'd have had because the thing is, as it stands, you've got two investigating presences yeah, yeah. and lots of sidekicks. Mm-hmm. Whereas if Hartnell had been there, you'd have had to have had three investigating presences and lots of sidekicks. It would there would have been some radical well, you changes. Mm. You could you'd have probably have bumped up, increased the Gallifrey scenes and turned that into a story of itself. Make it a six part story. I mean there was a massive change, but make it a six part story, have the Gallifrey setting, the antimatter setting and the Earth setting and, Two parts each, like in flip, Armageddon factor. Yeah, flipped between them, or cut between them. And then, then you Except get presumably it was always intended as a four-part story. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. actually, you just have had... Because at the moment, as it stands, sort of episodes two and three are basically sort of simultaneous plots going on at the same time. Yeah. With the two Doctors, you'd have had to somehow... Find a way to get a third. Yeah, you couldn't have you couldn't have had them in as it stands. You would have had to make significant. Changes. You probably would have had Omega grabbing the first Doctor, and he would have been in there having conversation with Omega the whole time. The other two doing all the. Well, it could yes. have had a storyline where he's being held hostage against the others or something. Mm. It might have made it snappier by having to have that third subplot in mm. there against the others, because mm. as it stands, it's it, it's only four parts as opposed to a lot of six parters from the time, but it's. It is very slow moving. Hmm. Hence, you've got that great big long sequence with Ollis and whatever he's called at the start. Well, I keep was... wanting to call him Rex. It's Rex Robinson. Also, a fair amount of padding waiting for them to get to the antimatter universe. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the second doctor constructing the device to ward off the, the blobby thing and then discovering it doesn't, it just aggravates him. And there's, there's no reason for that other than to get everybody into the TARDIS. By the end of episode two. But then that must have been always going to happen at the end of episode two, whatever. Mm. So it would have been presumably that Hartnell's doctor turned up on the other side of the black hole from the start or something. Mm. So he'd have been in there from the start and the other two follow him in. I don't know, hard to say. Yeah, It's interesting to wonder what it might Mm. have been though. Mm. Because presumably... The original conception was that all three would play a full part. Yeah. Should we give it a score? Okay. <clears throat> I don't know. Matt, do you <laughs> want to give it a score since you said okay? I'd probably give it between a six and a seven. Probably a seven out of ten. Mm. 
Simon? It's one of my 8 out of 10s. 8? Yeah, fair enough. I think I'll give it a 7. I'm sort of... I'm hovering between a 7 and an 8, just purely because of what it is. Mm. But in the end, because of how it turned out, it has to be the 7 rather than the 8, I think. Mm. But it's not in any way bad. There's nothing about it, apart from maybe that fight sequence at the end of part three. Yeah, that is... Mm. There's nothing about it that you'd actually want to be any different. Mm. It's just that, despite the mythic sort of story, it is as mundane as all the other poetry stories, really. There also back, ch- so much has spawned off the back of that. I mean, certainly as far as expanded yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that... Um, was it Alan Moore was writing about? Was it was it Alan Moore's stuff in Doctor Who Monthly? Oh, he yeah, he did Omega, I think. So mm. he was definitely inspired by this kind of mythic. Yeah, all that stuff with the special Time Lord, Le- Time Lord Legends. Mm. That's that's something that Alan Moore picked well, up. Steve Dillon strips, mm. beautiful strips. Yeah. The thing about the poetry stories is they are almost all of them such great fun. But by the time they actually get to the screen, any edges they had have kind of been shaved off, haven't they? Mm-hmm. They're just kind of... They're sort of eye-candy Doctor Who. They're Doctor Who that's fun to sit through. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that they do this mythical story about this Time Lord, you don't really take anything else away from it. No. Well... Okay, then, I guess that's the Three Doctors. Mm. I think we've actually done an episode in less than an hour for once. I have no <laughs> idea. I can't see the timer. Matt's there's gonna, a, there's only so much to, to one hour and one minute from it. Oh, well, we had an hour. We had a minute dithering around at the start. Didn't that's we? very true. <laughs> well, next week, if all goes according to plan, I'll be doing what I did at Christmas again. Well, I'll be having somebody from the wider universe of Doctor Who in to pick a top ten. And if all goes according to plan, I can only say that this will probably be the oddest episode of the Blue Box podcast there has ever or will ever be. Yeah, that's coming up next week. But until then, I was Matt. I was Simon. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon.